Hello, and welcome to the 20th episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now, for the stories of the week, ending April 17th, 2015. What up, InfoSec Sync fam? This is our 20th episode. Major milestone for us, major milestone for you. We're here to serve up security to the masses. Nicely said, man. Double major. Yeah, so... uh, Welcome back to another episode. Another episode, folks. Welcome to that domain. Time to uh, pseudo SU minus. <laughs> kick it up. Kick it up a notch and just listen to the security podcast. Or do it in at six. Yeah. Oh, sh- <laughs> Damn. Or do it at six. All right. So, guys, a few notes before we start this week. Keep sending in your fan mail. It's always great to hear from you fans, especially when you can share it out on our Twitter page, Facebook page, and YouTube's. We're out on the YouTube. Yep. Also, keep those questions coming in. We love to help people solve problems, so email Matt or Nick at infosexsync.com. Actually, Matt, I think we should probably start reading some of those that we get during the podcast, maybe like a a listener mail portion of the podcast or something. Yeah, man, that that definitely sounds good. Uh, Actually, I have a letter right here. It says, that guy, Nick, take him off the podcast. (laughs) No, I'm playing. Yeah, man, definitely. Next time, (laughs) next time we should check it out for sure, see what's happening. Um, You know. Damn, dude, you sipping over there. Sorry. He's sipping. You know, we got to eat our food. He's got some water going on Mm -hmm. over there. Little gin and juice. He's parched. All right. (laughs) So, time for security stories of the week. So this week's uh, Patch Tuesday story includes patches from Microsoft, Adobe, and Oracle. Four of Microsoft's patches were critical, including MS-15-034, which is a vulnerability in HTTP.sys, the library processing HTTP requests in Windows. According to Microsoft, the vulnerability could be used to run arbitrary code on a vulnerable host. Microsoft pushed out 11 update bundles to fix more than two dozen bugs in Windows and associated software, including one that was publicly disclosed later this month, which we'll talk about later. Adobe released three patches, which included Flash Player, Cold Fusion, and Adobe Flex. The Flash Player update fixes 22 flaws, including one flaw that is actively being exploited. Adobe's patch includes a fix for a zero-day bug, 
that the company warns is already being exploited. Users of the Adobe Flash Player for Windows and Macintosh should update to Adobe Flash Player 17.0.0.169. Google also has an update for Chrome that fixes a slew of flaws. Listen in. To force the installation of the available update, click the triple bar icon to the right of the address bar, select About Google Chrome, click the Apply Update button, and restart the browser. There's also Secunia PSI and some other personal software inspectors that you can install to handle the installs for you for any software that you have installed on your system. So, also, Oracle has an update for its Java software that addresses at least 15 flaws, all of which are exploitable remotely without any authentication. The critical patch update released by Oracle on Tuesday actually fixes 98 security flaws for a wide range of product families. The update contains 14 security fixes for vulnerabilities in Oracle Java SE, three of which have a CVSS uh, base score of 10.0, and all of which are remotely exploitable without authentication, according to an advisory posted on Tuesday. So included in this set of patches is the final release of public updates for Java 7. So I say and I quote SC Magazine, for Java 7 based applications this is the last security update that will be publicly available. The proverbial end of the road for Java 7 AppSec. So um, after today, the only version of the Java platform which will be received public security updates is Java 8. So in your enterprise environment, if you have developers, if you have individuals that are still you know, developing software and using Java 7 widely in the enterprise environment, now it's time to phase that out. Stop. It's wrong. CVSS <laughs> score of 10.0. That's, that's not good. So... Um, of the 17 vulnerabilities addressed in the Oracle Fusion middleware, 12 are remotely exploitable without authentication, and one of the flaws has a CVSS base score of 10.0. And in Oracle Sun Systems product suite, eight vulnerabilities were addressed, four being remotely exploitable without auth and having a CVSS score of 10 as well. And then the update for MySQL, another Oracle um, product, included includes fixes for 26 vulnerabilities, four of which are remotely exploitable without authentication, one of which has a CVSS score of 10. Basically, a lot of stuff going on. You need to, to update your Oracle products. Any product that's widely used is going to be widely exploited. People are going to be looking for ways to exploit that in the wild, so be sure to keep that updated. Um, let's see. You want me to go into the, the rest of them? or Yeah, might as well. So I'm just going to give you guys the uh, the vulnerabilities and the software that's affected. So we have um, Oracle Hyperion, Oracle eBusiness Suite, Oracle Supply Chain Products Suite, Oracle PeopleSoft Products, Oracle Commerce Platform, Oracle Retail Applications, Oracle Enterprise Manager Grid Control, Oracle Siebel uh, CRM, and WebBug was addressed in the Oracle Right Now Service Cloud. And then we have uh, Oracle Database. Um, which has a CVSS score of 9.0, Oracle JD Edwards products, Oracle Health Sciences applications, and one fall, uh, flaw addressed in the Oracle support tools. The problem with this company taking on other companies and putting them up under Oracle is now Oracle has a lot of responsibility with patching these things. So That's why there's so many all the time. That's, that's why there's so many all the time. They're busy, definitely. So let's get into the next story. Enough about software security so um, how many of you guys have a, a debit card I have a couple of debit cards right I have a couple of Nick's debit cards too <laughs> right I make copies of them so um, 
that means that we have a bank somewhere somehow we use the we use something in the banking industry and we trust banks to have a secure protocol so banking industry security protocol falters in third-party vendor contracts so this is very very um, you know cool uncovering of, of events and trying to keep you guys in the know as listeners so nearly a third of the banking organizations do not require their third-party vendors to notify them in the event of an infosec breach according to a recent study in the banking sector cybersecurity practices the U- new york state department of financial services issues its update on cybersecurity in the banking sector um, third-party service providers earlier this month to analyze the due diligence processes policies and procedures governing relationships with third-party vendors uh, protections for safeguarding sensitive data and protections against loss incurred due to third-party information security failures so a survey with 10 banking organizations yielded the report findings, which indicated that fewer than half of those surveyed conduct an on-site assessment of their third-party vendors. Plus, approximately one in five banks do not require third-party vendors to represent that they have established minimum information security requirements. One-third of the banks mandate that those requirements be extended in subcontractors of third-party vendors. So, um, Jamie W., I'm not even going to try to botch that last name, founder of Exari, a contract management and document assembly solutions provider, noted the lack of requirements most likely are a result of outdated contracts. So five years ago, a bank might have bothered to say that a particular supplier must meet these security levels in a contract. So it wasn't pre-negotiated. Plus, a contract tends to be hefty, making it hard to ensure that all the security bases are covered. Ultimately, um, making it hard to ensure that everything is taken care of, everything is identified. The report highlights a need for IT security professionals to coordinate with their company's legal teams to ensure the current needs are being met in years-old contract formats. So security teams may also uh, can also maybe go and look at these vendors. They can analyze them and write a report. So this might help point out lacking protocol that should be written into contract as necessary. Furthermore, it was noted that the best contracts are explicit, have unqualified promises, and clear timelines about when something needs to be done. Very interesting. So, um, I know you probably can't comment on it. Can you, Nick? No. No? You're pleading the fifth? Pleading the fifth on that one. Well, me and Vic can talk on it. So, basically, right now, you have, like, FISMA compliance, you have... FedRAMP compliance, all sorts of compliance. Actually, you could probably even weigh in on this. We're, we're going off of that. So in an enterprise environment, if you have an inter-service agreement, a memorandum of understanding, if you have a service level agreement with another organization to either provide a service or provide some type of security or provide some type of application, something tangible to your business, um, typically what you see is uh, you're able to outline things that are deliverables and a timeline how you get from point a to point b i don't really care about just as long as you get to point b in the identified timeline what it sounds like with these banks is the contract has been very stringent and very direct and very verbose from the beginning which doesn't leave up any room for interpretation any room for flexibility inside of that contract so therefore if you say that these security methods have to be adopted right and there's a breach of vulnerability something that occurs guess what now i can go back to the contract 
and say, well, you never said I had to either incorporate that, report that, do this, because you outlined exactly what we had to do, and it's not inside of that you know, rubric or that those, those points that you put inside of the original contract. So basically, when doing this, you have to adopt some sort of framework to ensure that a secure software, that a secure system be delivered on time, and that it has room to grow and it has room to be secure. You don't allow that to happen, it's never going to be secure and delivered uh, in a proper format. What do you guys think? The insights of Matt Morris. I think Matt did a good job summing it up. That's pretty good, Matt. Cricket, cricket. Matt is the messiah. It's Mr. Maestro to you. All Mr. right. Maestro. <laughs> All right, dude. So you want to talk about the Pentagon? Yeah. So did you guys see this? The the headline read, Pentagon to recruit thousands for cybersecurity reserve force. So there's probably people out there saying, what? Can I sign up? Can I be in the reserves? The Pentagon is prepared to draft thousands of private sector and National Guard cyber pros in the event of a network emergency affecting American lives, a top U.S. military official said Tuesday. The surge forces will be trained by the Defense Department and helped defend the energy sector, telecommunications, and other so-called critical infrastructure. Defense Principal Cyber Advisor Eric Rosenbach said in remarks prepared for a Senate Armed Forces Subcommittee hearing, up to 2,000 Reserve and National Guard personnel will also support the Cyber Mission Force, which is part of the Department's Offensive and Defensive Cyber Command, he added. The Pentagon is bringing in security reinforcements as it contends with a cyber workforce shortage and growing internet threat. Each military service has developed reserve component integration strategies that harness active duty cyber know-how and leverage the reserve and National Guard strengths from the private sector, Rosenbach said in his written testimony for Tuesday's hearing. Military and civilian agencies currently are competing with the private sector for the scarce cyber talent. Lawmakers and advisory councils have long recommended the federal government institute a civilian cyber militia to aid agencies during crisis. On Monday, the Partnership for Public Service issued a similar call to arms. The Federal Workforce Adversary Group urged the government to establish a civilian cyber reserve training corps modeled on the military's ROTC program to provide education and workforce development. More than 100 foreign intelligence agencies continually attempt to infiltrate U.S. military networks. Some incursions by both state and non-state entities have succeeded, Rosenbach said. DOD as a whole is looking to hire 3,000 cyber whizzes by December 31st. Cyber Command is slated to be at full capacity in fiscal 2018 with 6,200 military and civilian personnel. The forces currently have staff. The department is talking to industry members about incentives and career pathways to bring more cyber expertise into the military, Rosenbach testified. He singled out North Korea's alleged attack on Sony Pictures Entertainment as an example of how threat actors are targeting American companies. Calling the incident the most destructive cyber attack against the United States to date, he accused North Korea of destroying systems and exposing sensitive data. Rosenbach also asserted the country threatened physical violence in retaliation for releasing a film of which the regime disapproves. So we all uh, know about that and 
Actually, I think it was a film everyone disapproved because it didn't do that good. <laughs> it didn't? It didn't do that well? I don't think so. So that leads us to our next story, right, Matt? Well, well wasn't... I know Sony's considered a U.S. company, but Sony's still Japanese. Yeah, Sony is global. Right. So it was a global attack. <laughs> wow. Global information security. All right, y'all. Um, let's get into the next story. So uh, this next story is um, this next story is about DoD's fight to keep its best hackers. So DoD is among probably the best equipped federal governments at recruiting, training, and staffing an elite team of cyber professionals. Thanks to Congress, the DoD has been granted significant leeway in bypassing sluggish federal hiring process and onboard staff quicker and greater latitude to pay new recruits retention bonuses and provide other perks. But even that's not enough to stop some top-level technical talent from jumping ship. We're throwing the kitchen sink at them from our standpoint, said NSA's human resource director, uh, and they said they're writing to us as they leave NSA in their exit interviews, I'm leaving to double my salary. So the um, director, our human resources technical director, uh, spoke Tuesday during a panel discussion hosted by the Partnership for Public Service on the shortage of skilled cybersecurity professionals in the government. A recent report from the partnership and consultancy Booz Allen um, called attention to the most pressing challenges the government faces in hiring cybersecurity talent. The arcane federal hiring process and rigid pay scale not keeping pace with the private sector and lack of a government-wide master strategy for boosting the cybersecurity workforce. NSA, along with other parts of the intelligence community and DOD, has been granted flexibility to bypass traditional hurdles in hiring process and adjust salary rates to be more competitive. The report called on the Obama administration to allow agencies to fast-track cyber hiring as well as stand up government-wide cyber training centers and create a version of the military ROTC program for cyber recruits. NSA is really the poster child for many reforms we've advocated here, said Ron Sanders, former chief human capital officer for the intelligence community and vice president at Booz Allen Hamilton. He co-authored the report. But NSA's experiences point to a lack of a silver bullet. We're losing more technical people at a higher rate in resignations early on in their careers than we do people in other skill sets, uh, says uh, a senior official at NSA. It stings all the more as most depart after they've undergone extensive specialized training. The competition out there is really fierce, and particularly for those folks that make a big investment in, um, they feel those losses are very, uh, they feel them very keenly. According to the report, 2014 marked the second year in a row in which the number of civilian federal cyber employees streaming for the exits outpaced the number of new hires. That figure, which excludes military members and intelligence community employees, followed a three-year period between 2009 to 2012 when the number of hires outpaced separations by much larger margins. The overall attrition rate isn't necessarily raising eyebrows. But the alarm for us is that 25% of our millennials are turning over. And so that's an entirely different equation when the talent you just brought in is leaving so quickly, says Sarah Ratcliffe, director of the Human Capital Management Office in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. 
Overall, less than a quarter of the federal civilian cybersecurity workforce is under the age of 30. Nearly half is over 50. The government's ability to shell out big bucks is no doubt part of the reason for the attrition, at least at the NSA, Yelenovsky says, citing the message that frequently crop up on the agency's internal social media network from departing employees. As parting, as typical parting, though, is, I love NSA, I love the mission, I love the people, I love the opportunity, I love the work, however, I can't afford to stay here. The federal pay scale, excluding locality play and other add-ons, tops out at 130000 Other factors may be at play for those sought-after millennials. They want to they want great technology, they want good spaces to work in, they want lots of development opportunities, they want to expect all of those things, Yelenoski said. And there are employers who are more advanced than we are in providing the whole package. So 130000 sounds pretty good. I need to get on that train. Especially in other parts of the uh, country, too. Yeah. 130000 big. Hell yeah. Hell to the yeah. Hell to the yeah. So... At the end of the day, I'm waiting for minimum wage to get increased so I could get a pay raise. What a coincidence. You too? Me too. <laughs> so, at the end of the that day. That 850 isn't cutting it? What's that? That 850 isn't cutting it? Is it 850? Um, then I've been getting paid less. <laughs> but at the end of the day, what I think it boils down to is identifying the training, identifying the hard points of an employee that you have in the enterprise environment working for you, doing a particular mission or job, especially when it's cybersecurity. When it's cybersecurity, you can become stale in that industry very quickly. You have to keep up on training. You have to keep up on the latest and greatest. And also, a lot has to do with where you work. When I say where you work, the location. That's true. So not I'm not think don't even think like city, state, county, anything like that. I'm talking like when you go in to work. Where you're you're physically located? If you're working in a cubicle that's dingy or if you're working in a basement, you're you're not going to want to come to work. So there has to be a lot of attention paid to exactly where individuals are working. You need to keep people happy. You got to keep people happy. What do you think about, Vic? What do you think about it? I want to be happy. Well, we got pizza here, so you're already happy. Hell yeah. You got your liquid... Was it Schwartz? May the Schwartz be with you. May the Schwartz be with you. All right, so you got the next story for us, Nick? 850, huh? Yes. There's an 18-year-old security flaw that allows hackers to steal credentials from all versions of Windows. So earlier, about 20 minutes ago, we talked about Patch Tuesday and the latest patches. One of them is Windows Server Message Block, or simply put, SMB. In 1997, researcher Aaron Spangler discovered a bug in the Internet Explorer that allowed an attacker to steal credentials using a protocol known as a Windows Server Message Block. 18 years later, a researcher on the Silence Spear research team testing a message app with that bug in mind discovered a much larger vulnerability that affects at least 31 applications, including Adobe Reader, iTunes, Box, and Symantec SYMC, Norton Security Scan, on all versions of Windows. This new vulnerability, called Redirect to SMB, allows user login credentials to be leaked 
from a variety of Windows applications by tricking the apps into authenticating with a rogue server. It's tricky. Redirect to SMB allows hackers to execute a man-in-the-middle attack on a Windows device, sending communications to a malicious SMB server, which can then produce the username and encrypt your passwords. After that, an attacker can decrypt the password again and gain access to a variety of vulnerable applications. Silence referred to it as a, quote, forever day vulnerability because the original bug has been an ongoing threat since its discovery in 1997. While Spangler's bug was limited to Internet Explorer, the redirect to SMB vulnerability affects a number of applications on all versions of Windows. So what does this mean for a Windows user? Imagine if a person was in a coffee shop browsing the Internet on a Windows laptop using free unsecured Wi-Fi. Do you guys know anyone who does that? Everyone does that, right? No, I don't do that. <laughs> do that I'm not talking us. I'm I talking use, you. You go into Starbucks and everyone's on the Starbucks oh, yeah. Wi-Fi. No, I use I use Vix Wireless. <laughs> if an attacker was able to gain the device through a man-in-the-middle attack, the attacker could use the vulnerability to get user credentials for a number of vulnerable apps. For example, if iTunes checked for an update or Symantec Norton antivirus ran a scan the hacker would be able to access those credentials. If the user synced the files on their computer to Box, the user's Box login could be compromised, giving the attacker access to the user's files. Gaining access to corporate files is a, is a particularly concerning possibility, as stolen Windows domain credentials were used in the Sony attacks. The potential impact of this vulnerability became clear to Wallace as he first looked into the messaging app he was testing and then expanded out to test other applications. He says, at first I was happy. I was able to discover an issue with the chat messenger. It was a mixed feeling of excitement and fear, that feeling built over time to the disclosure. Once Wallace realized how wide-reaching the redirect to SMB vulnerability was, his team decided to disclose it to Carnegie Mellon University CERT. Carnegie Mellon reached out to and worked with all affected applications to patch the vulnerability before publicly disclosing the vulnerability today. Wallace hopes that the security community will work together to discover other applications that need patched. So far, the vulnerability has not been seen in the wild. The 31 vulnerable applications Silence found are Adobe Reader, Apple QuickTime, Apple Software Update, which handles the updating for iTunes, Internet Explorer, Windows Media Player, Excel 2010, Symantec Norton Security Scan, AVG Free, Bitdefender Free, Commodore Antivirus, .NET Reflector, Maltigo CE, Box Sync, TeamViewer, GitHub for Windows, PyCharm, IntelliJ IDEA, PHP Storm, and JDK 8U31's installer. And we would like to thank Kate Vinton with Forbes for that article. So, Vic, you're going to be happy with this next um, article. Your, so we your have, revenge. Yeah. We got uh, the revenge here. Um, Apple. So, Apple has, a, has an issue. So, Apple patches Darwin Nuke and other security flaws in the new OS release. So, Apple iPhone, iPad, and Mac users 
have more than one reason to upgrade to the latest version of iOS and OSX besides the new Photos app and 300 additional emoji characters and several other features that Apple has packed into its operating systems. The new version also addresses a serious security vulnerability that leaves people using devices running OSX 10.10 or iOS 8 open to a denial of service attack. The flaw discovered by researchers at Kaspersky Lab exists in the kernel of Darwin, the open source components on which iOS and OSXX are built. Dubbed Darwin Nuke, the vulnerability basically allows attackers to remotely activate denial of service attacks that can damage a user's Mac or iOS device and impact any corporate network to which it's connected, according to the alert issued by Kaspersky Lab. So the devices affected by the threat include those 64-bit processors in iOS 8, says Anton Ivanov, a a senior malware analyst at Kaspersky Lab. So, what's up? You're supposed to do that in your accent. <laughs> oh, are you serious? All right, let's try. Anton Ivanov, senior malware analyst at Kaspersky Lab. <laughs> so, sp- <laughs> no, we just recorded that. Yeah. So, this is this is a live podcast, Vic. Get familiar. All right. Okay. <laughs> So, specific devices include the iPhone 5S, iPhone 6, 6 Plus, iPad Air, iPad Air 2, iPad Mini 2, and iPad Mini 3. Um, The problem has to do with the manner in which Darwin processes IP packets of a specific size containing certain invalid IP options. An attacker that knows how to craft such malformed packets can use them to imitate or initiate, excuse me, a denial of service attack on any device running OS X 10.10 or iOS 8. After processing the invalid network packet, the system will crash, Ivanov said. Attackers can just send one incorrect network packet to the victim, and the victim's system would crash, he told Dark Reading. However, certain specific conditions need to exist in order for someone to be able to exploit the vulnerability. The system can be made to crash only if the size of the IP packet header is 60 bytes and the payload itself is equal uh, or less than 65 bytes. The IP options specified in the packet also need to be deliberately incorrect in terms of size, class, and other features. The bug appears hard to exploit initially because the prerequisite conditions are not particularly easy to achieve. But persistent cyber criminals can do so, Ivanov says. So, <laughs> so, though routers and firewalls typically drop incorrectly formatted uh, IP packets, they do not always do so, he noted. Kaspersky researchers were able to find several combinations of incorrect IP options that are able to get through the Internet routers and perimeter defenses like firewalls. As a result, those using devices running OS X 10.10 and iOS 8 should update to the new OS X Yosemite, version 10.10.3 and iOS 8.3 release of the operating systems. Apple's new OS X Yosemite 10.10.3 addresses another critical security flaw, one discovered by Emil Kavarhamar, a security researcher at TrueSec. Who? Kavarhamar. That's what it that's what it says. I'm oh, probably okay. I'm probably butchering that last name. No, I like the better in the accent. <laughs> so according um According to TrueSec, the admin framework in OSX contain a hidden, uh, contains a hidden backdoor 
application programming interface that will let an attacker gain root access to devices running previous versions of the operating system. This is a local privilege escalation to root, which can be used locally or combined with remote code execution exploits, he wrote an alert yesterday. TrueSec says also they have discovered the flaw in 2014 and reported it to Apple, but he thinks it may have been around since at least 2011 when Mac OS X 10.7 was released. Mac users running OS X 10, uh, 10.9 and older remain vulnerable to the threat because Apple has decided not to issue patches for these versions. He noted urging people to upgrade to 10.10.3. Apple's Yosemite version 10.10.3 addresses several other flaws as well to include several arbitrary code execution flaws reported by various researchers and by Google's Project Zero Vulnerability Research Group. Apple has published a complete list of patch vulnerabilities in Yosemite version 10.10.3. They would also like to thank uh, Jay Vidayan and uh, with Dark Reading for that article. Cool. Yeah, that looks good. That looks good. So, um, man, at least my Android doesn't have that issue. Sure. Or does it? Dun dun dun. We'll never know. <coughs> so you got some uh, something else for us? Yeah, I got another one for you. All right, what's up? Seven router features you should be using for better Wi-Fi. Uh, do tell. Only a few years ago, wireless routers were relatively dumb devices that merely beamed the web into your home or office and not much more. Now, they offer everything from support for multiple wireless frequencies to mobile management tools. And forget the painful setup. The best routers boast a much higher level of default intelligence, making it simpler than ever to configure and use more advanced features. Many functions that once required significant networking know-how can now be properly set up with the click of a mouse. With that in mind, here are seven features found in the most advanced wireless routers that are well worth the time and effort to configure and use. Whether you're setting up your home or business network, you can extend the welcome mat to visitors with free Wi-Fi. Most routers on the market today include the ability to easily offer guest access to your wireless network. In some cases, this access is even enabled by default. If you are security conscious, you may choose to not allow outside entities access to your network, but you'll need to disable this setting. If you are allowing guest access, it's a good idea to change the guest password on a regular basis. And if your router supports multiple frequencies, let's say 2.4 gigahertz and five gigahertz speeds, you might also elect to limit guest access to the slower 2.4 gigahertz network saving the higher performance access for internal connections only. Some router makers also allow an even greater level of control access with the added capability of limiting the number of hours or time of day that guest access is available for use. With the mobile management apps offered by most manufacturers, you can change passwords, control access to different frequencies, and enable and disable guest accounts on the fly from most smartphones. Parental controls aren't simply for stopping kids from visiting unsavory websites. In a small business environment, they can be quite useful for explicitly managing sites that should not be accessed on company time. Router vendors offer varying levels of control 
ranging from granular blocking on a per-device level to full-blown content control systems that manage access to external sites. These capabilities can include an additional layer of security protection for your network with anti-phishing and malware detection capabilities you can configure. I like that. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, you must look at, especially when configuring a wireless network, because you are expanding your vulnerability level out now. Your your whole attack surface now is expanding outside of your front door to maybe surrounding your house. You're with advertising it out, actually. You're advertising it out. So that's another thing. You can hide the SSID, which a lot of people think is another added level of security, but really that's security through obscurity. Because um, I know with Windows 8, you can sniff and see, um, even if you have the... <laughs> Out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah, even if you have the SSID hidden, it will show the SSID, I believe, in Windows 8. Or if you have an Eric PCAP adapter, you can also get that. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about backdoors. Some vendors have gone a step further than merely supporting network-attached storage. A range of high-end routers offer DLNA discoverable services that can be explicitly configured as a media server with detailed control over how to and where audio and video services are delivered. This server-side application can also be used to manage file sharing permissions on externally attached storage. Some manufacturers have gone as far as to including backup applications, which allow attached storage devices to become a part of an automated client backup process. With the continuing drop in storage prices, a small business, for example, may be able to use a multi-terabyte USB hard drive connected to an advanced router as a centralized backup solution for that small enterprise managed business. Wireless printing is nothing new. But with USB connectivity becoming standard, nearly any printer can be turned into an internet-connected model just by plugging it into your router. Some manufacturers provide wireless support for printers that are not AirPrint-enabled. When accessed via a supporting router, and um, typically in, in a home or office with heavy iPad or iPhone use, the ability to print from any iDevice can really come in handy. What if you could easily ensure faster internet speeds for the applications that were most important to you? Wireless writers have offered quality of service and wireless multimedia expansion support for quite a few generations. For the most part, the actual effectiveness of these technologies was, at best, a slightly noticeable gain in performance and, at worst, a wasted effort in configuring explicit applications and bandwidth settings. Router makers have taken note, however, and realized that getting optimal network speeds for specific programs has become a much more common requirement. Many models now offer the ability to configure specific applications and user devices for optimized networking performance. An administrator may elect to prioritize the performance of desktops, for example, while not optimizing connectivity for smartphones or tablets. For example, as businesses add cloud-based services, those offerings could be added by name to a priority list, giving them precedence over non-line-of-business internet connections. Vendors have often taken a look at how WMM and QoS interact and have added intelligence that allows technologies to coexist in a much cleaner fashion than before. In the past, a conflict between the two configurations could easily degrade wireless networking performance. Smartphones and tablets in the office are here to stay, and router makers have responded to the upswing with tools that allow for greater functionality and mobile management on a range of devices. So are just some of the general purposes. 
like Wi-Fi scanners that can be used as part of the troubleshooting process when configuring and positioning router equipment. Administrators can also monitor signal strength, channel contention, and attenuation from any manufacturer's router on their mobile device. Some apps even allow you to go from room to room, identifying each space and noting the signal strength, allowing for different router antenna configurations and locations to deliver optimal performance in each spot. So seriously considering configuring. If you stick with the default settings, you'll certainly get the same router functionality you've come to rely on. But a few minutes spent configuring these advanced features could pay off in real benefits. These high-end options vary from vendor to vendor, of course, so be sure to consider the applications and hardware your router supports. We would like to thank David Chernikoff from PCMag.com for that wonderful article. And remember, when you get a new router, change the default settings because your neighbor's going to have the same ones you do, probably. Admin password. You know? Username admin, yep. password, password. Yep. Are you going to change yours, Nick? Oh, mine's been changed many times. Really? Yeah, he's changed it to PA22WRD. <laughs> and don't put, like, your name, your last name on there. No, I... Mine, mine's called Hack This. Mine's called uh, FBI, uh, <laughs> FBI Surveillance Band. In fact, you should set up a honeypot, right? <laughs> exactly. No, uh, whoa. This blew my mind right Ooh. there. Mind blown. So... Let's jump into something else. Cool. Home automation, back doors, and unpatched flaws. Sounds like a country song. I know, right? So malicious firmware updates could lead to device and full home network ownage. Oh, I like that. Research will show next week at the RSA conference. So Billy Rios plans to demonstrate with a game of Pac-Man an attack on a long-known vulnerability in a home automation controller. The security researcher, next week at the RSA conference in San Francisco, will show an exploit he created that replaces the device, device's firmware with a malicious code that means game over for the device, literally, in this case, with a Pac-Man application. So the exploit demonstrates how an attacker could use a cross-site request forgery flaw, first reported in 2013 by Trustwave Spider Labs, uh, CVE... Did you say Pac-Man? I did. Damn it. That is too funny. All right, so CVE 2013. That was uh, Nick's ringtone, by the way. Um, he, oh, look at that. Uh, he actually... Uh, Gotta drink beer with Pac-Man. I know, right? Actually, Nick carried that same ringtone over from his uh, Nokia 8310 <laughs> uh, he just upgraded from. And before that, it was the StarTac. So. That's why he was never worried about being hacked. No, I mean, who wants to hack a Sprint PCS? <sighs> Actually, what was the what was it? There was Sprint before it was. Um, what was it called? It wasn't just Sprint. It was like Sprint PCS or something. Yeah, Sprint PCS. <laughs> oh man, that's too yuck, funny. Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> Dude, he he's had the. He just got off of the iPhone too, so no, stop giving him a hard time. Now he's got the iPhone six Plus. His electric bill went down. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't have to use DC uh, 12-volt batteries <laughs> he, to power his device anymore. Some some of us remember the tube TVs, but Nick, he had a tube cell phone. <laughs> he had a, he was a, a tube operator. He was one. His cell phone was so powerful. Tube. If you made a phone call, you'd probably end up with cancer. <laughs> oh Lord! It was a cathode ray tube, a CRT. It had a monitor and everything. <laughs> All right, so um, back to the uh, to the talk at hand here. 
So the exploit demonstrates how an attacker could abuse a cross-site request forgery um, flaw first reported in 2013 by Trustwave Spider Labs. CVE 2013-4861 in the Veris Smart Home Controller and complete, uh, completely owned the smart home device as well as infiltrate the home network and attach computers. Rios, the founder of his own LLC, says that the bug would allow an attacker to update his own firmware to the device. The attack begins when a user on the home network visit, visits a website infected with a malvertising exploit, for example, which then redirects the Vera device to the attacker's server, silently installing the malicious code. It turns off the legitimate firmware update mechanisms for the home automation controller, with the consumer being none the wiser. So the home automation controller is a hub of sorts for home automation functions, such as controlling lights, HVAC systems, and garage door openers. Firmware is the brains of the device. What we can do is remotely point it to... channel want. As you can see, we have an open forum to discuss this, and people object to leaving Vera open. So we are not able to lock down the gateway and effectively break the systems of many customers who rely on the open systems to run their own scripts and plugins. Vera's response echoes a similar theme with other Internet of Things vendors whose products have been exposed carrying security bugs. Caesar Ceruto, CTO at IOActive, ran into the same response last year when he reported firmware update flaws in Census Network's wireless smart traffic system sensors. In that case, the issue was unencrypted updates that could be hijacked with malware. Census maintained that it had removed encryption because its customers had requested it. Vera, which is based in Hong Kong, says a new feature in the newer version of the firmware called Secure to Click would mitigate such an attack. Rios's research was on the newest version of the software, which contains the, CSSR, the CSRF flaw. He says he tested it with the default settings in place because that's how most customers would typically run it out of the box. They would just open it and turn it on, right? Meanwhile, Rio says his firmware backdoor exploit demonstrates just how punishing the CSRF vulnerability in Vera's firmware update process really is. Plus, the device itself doesn't validate firmware, leaving it vulnerable to malicious code. Firmware integrity isn't validated anywhere, he says. The Pac-Man application is mainly a lighthearted way for Rios to demonstrate that the Vera firmware has been replaced. Quote, and I'm going to play one round of Pac-Man for the crowd, he says. Once in control of the home automation controller, an attacker basically becomes an access point on the home network. Having a foothold into the home network is pretty bad. They can attack you and other devices on the network, Rios says. An attacker would need some knowledge of the device. Rios notes such that his rogue firmware wouldn't merely break the device rather than backdoor it. Other home automation controllers harbor similar weaknesses, and he's demonstrating Vera's because it's a publicly reported bug. 
He says, I think one of the things we're seeing is many of these vendors in IoT don't really understand the classes of attacks we're dealing with. They have to fix these bugs. They are pretty uh, trivial to exploit. Adding firmware and application code verification would prevent this type of an attack, akin to how Apple only allows signed apps or firmware to download and run on an iPhone. It's not magic. Rios also has a built has built a Metasploit module for the attack. All it does is push the backdoor firmware update. It allows us to specify the server where your firmware updates come from, he says. And we'd like to thank Kelly Jackson Higgins with Dark Reading for that report. That sounds good. So that's uh, you know, something you definitely have to look up for, look out for. We talked about Internet of Things probably in episode nine or ten. Um, and you know, it's kind of now gotten into the mainstream. So it's something to look out for. Um, no matter what, it's still a system, it's still a computer, it's still something that can, you know, run code and be persistent to some extent because you need your therm- Nest thermostat to stay up, right? <laughs> That's right. You need Not, your garage yep. door opener to stay on to, on the network. need your lights so, to stay on, exactly. your door to open. Exactly. So that's something definitely to look out for. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to finish, finish out, out the, the show. show. For show. What's we're up? Back. We're back. Let's finish this out. Vic, you got any closing remarks? Man, it was a good podcast, wasn't it? Yeah, thanks for uh, spending the last 50 minutes with us, folks. Yeah, that was really good. So this is number 20. Um, we're looking uh, forward to the next 20 and onwards. So uh, thanks so much for your support. Remember, hit us on Facebook, hit us on Twitter, check out our YouTube, look at our previous podcasts on iTunes and also on the site. All right, guys, till next time. Stay, Stay in sync with InfoSec Sync. sync.